It's about mindset, it's about entrepreneurship, and it's about career growth. Whatever we consume on a daily basis will mm. definitely influence us. It felt so amazing that there just wasn't any going back. I couldn't give myself plan B. It has to be commit to plan A. In a while, huh? Yeah. Oh, really? Am I your like, first guest? Yeah. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, right, team. We're back. Um, we are... Very privileged to have Dr. Alan Goldhammer join us from the US. It's a little bit earlier there, it's a little bit later here. Um, Dr. Alan is the world's leading voice on water fasting. Um, he's been he's been termed as a pioneering visionary in the health space. Uh, he's the founder of True North Medical Center, the author of two books, The Health Promoting Cookbook, and also The Pleasure Trap, and is certainly well known um, for his successful treatment of lymphoma cancer, uh, utilizing water fasting and a vegan non-salt oil and sugar diet. Dr. Alan, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure, glad to be here. Um, look, we'll, we'll jump straight into it. Uh, top line for those that don't quite understand the concept or the benefits of it. Um, can you give us the, the number one reason as to why do patients come to you for water fasting and what is the, the top line benefits that they can gain from that process? Well, you know, there's a variety of patients that we've seen over the past 36 years. Uh, around 20,000 patients. And some of them have come in because they're healthy and they believe that periodic fasting may uh, augment their body's ability to try to stay healthy. It may uh, slow the aging process. It may uh, provide uh, uh, the ability of the body to keep up uh, with the uh, stresses that aren't controllable in life. But mostly what we see are people that are driven by pain, debility, and fear of death. They have high blood pressure. They have diabetes. Uh, they have autoimmune diseases, and they've been told by their doctors that they have to be on drugs the rest of their life, and they're guaranteed that they'll never get well. Their doctors tell them if they do what they're told, they'll be sick forever, they'll be on drugs for, forever, and that's just how it is. Uh, they're looking for an alternative way of getting the body to heal itself, eliminate the need for medications, uh, and overcome the problems that they're suffering with. And fasting is an ancient practice that gives people uh, that opportunity to overcome the diseases of dietary excess, or the, what used to be called the diseases of kings, the cardiovascular disease, the, the high blood pressure, the uh, type 2 diabetes, et cetera. Uh, and, and it makes sense because you realize today that people are suffering as a consequence of metabolic syndrome, uh, problems with obesity and elevated blood pressure and, and lipids. And this, this is the result of dietary excess. And so it's not shocking to hear that fasting is a way of giving the body a chance to undo the consequences of dietary excess. And in fact, that's exactly the conditions that respond the most dramatically to fasting, conditions that are caused or contributed by poor choices in diet and lifestyle. That's amazing. I mean, sorry, do you go ahead, mate. Yeah, I was just going to say that's amazing. And coming from a culture that, you know, we are used to fasting uh, in the Middle Eastern world, right? So we've got Ramadan, the month of Ramadan, of course, where uh, it's part of a culture and, 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 and to, to, to wake up and, and fast without water and without food for long periods of time. But of course, we break that fast. It, is, it isn't a super prolonged uh, amount of fasting as it's for 30 days. And maybe the first myth that I want you to I'd love to, to, to hear your thoughts on is how long can humans survive? in a long-term water fast? Well, it depends on the reserves of the individual. People with substantial overweight have fasted for as long as 365 days on water only, so over a year, actually 388, Whoa. I believe. <laughs> wow. So that's an extreme. Um, uh, an average 50, uh, 70 kilogram male uh, could go probably around 70 days uh, with rest. Um, in our practice, we limit fasting to 40 days. 
So we don't like to get into those borderline areas of electrolyte depletion and other issues. So we, we limit fasting uh, with few exceptions to, to 40 days. And the typical patient fasting at the True North Health Center is actually fasting somewhere between two and three weeks. Uh, so they don't, not everybody has to go 40 days to get a good result. Yeah. Many people are fasting, healthy people often fast five to 10 days and get significant uh, benefit in reboosting, rebooting their gut microbiome and detoxifying and getting some of these other benefits that are associated both with intermittent fasting and long-term fasting. So intermittent fasting is where you limit your feeding window. We do that with every patient every day uh, between 12 and 16 hours. So everybody, all the time, not just at the center, but we encourage them uh, in their lives to limit their feeding window to between 8 and 12 hours. And by doing that, they induce a 12 to 16-hour fast every single day. And even that small amount of fasting is associated with the induction of changes that are thought to be health-promoting. And in fact, intermittent fasting uh, protocols are uh, being uh, practiced much more commonly, obviously, than long-term water-only fasting protocols, which need to be done in a controlled environment and under supervision. Intermittent fasting can be done by virtually everybody, uh, virtually all the time. And we believe that the practice of intermittent fasting, whether it's um, uh, uh, during uh, daylight hours uh, associated with Ramadan or whether it's just as a daily practice every day, uh, is thought to help limit overeating and as a consequence, limit obesity and also induce these changes associated with, uh, with fasting. And with regards to that, I mean, intermittent fasting certainly has become, I would say, a lot more on trend over the last few years. There's been a lot of conversation around it um, for a number of different areas. Outside of the overeating, that's a fairly obvious um, re result, I would say, uh, the avoidance of overeating if you're doing intermittent fasting. But what are some of the changes that a body can generally see in a, mm. let's say, a 12-hour period um, consistently um, over time, that compounding benefit? Right. So, you know, the people like Walter Longo have done a lot of work and published papers, uh, including in the journal Metabolism in 2015, where he talks about a lot of the uh, changes that associ are associated with fasting and are thought to also be induced by intermittent fasting. So there's lots of things that go down and there's lots of things that go up uh, when you introduce fasting. Uh, for example, uh, glucose and insulin are profoundly affected by even short periods of fasting. And you induce enzyme systems in fasting um, that allow you, for example, to mobilize things like glycogen stores. You know, part of being a trained athlete is forcing the body to mobilize uh, glycogen stores. Glycogen is, is sugar that's stored in the muscles that's used as your primary source of fuel. And so every time you go out and you push the system and deplete glycogen stores, you force the body to induce enzyme systems. And it's thought that those enzyme systems produce persist. And that's part of what being a trained athlete is getting mm -hmm. good at mobilizing glycogen source. You know, you, you hear about people doing like um, glucose or glycogen loading, where they'll try to increase carbohydrates before an event to try to increase glycogen stores. Well, it's not just about increasing the storage, but also increasing your capacity to mobilize those stores. When you hit the wall in a marathon at, at 20 miles, part of that may be associated with depleting glycogen stores and, and reinforcing gluconeogenesis and, and uh, lipolysis. And again, anything you do that forces those enzyme systems to be induced may in the long run result in better and more efficient mobilization of fat stores, glu glucose, and protein stores. Well, fasting forces that because, with, you know, it's, as you get, if you, if you stop eating, you will deplete glycogen stores and you will begin inducing these processes of lipolysis. It's particularly profound in long-term fasting. 
So when you, after 48 hours, there's, there's virtually no glycogen source left. So everything you're getting is either coming from the mobilization of fat or gluconeogenesis, the breakdown of protein. It's one of the reasons why in long-term fasting, we have to rest people, not exercise them. It's true. If you do long-term fasting and you exercise, you'll lose more weight. But it's because a higher proportion of that's going to be coming from protein in the process of gluconeogenesis. If you fast and rest, the majority of your energy comes from fat. And what we've discovered recently and studied at the True North Health Center, uh, we got one of these uh, DEXA scanners uh, with uh, the new software that allows you to do whole body composition. And we've been able to prove in a study that not only do you mobilize primarily uh, fat stores, but specifically and preferentially visceral fat stores. Mm-hmm. So that although you might lose 20% of your uh, adipose tissue, for example, in a 14-day fast, you may lose 50% of visceral fat. And visceral fat is the type of fat associated with pathology, inflammation, the type of fat that shouldn't really be there in quantity, but mm-hmm. the body has no place else to put the materials because we're overeating consistently. So uh, interesting, I'll unpack a couple of points that you've made there around um, there was kind of the wellness side and also the, the performance side. Uh, I'm quite interested in that. I'm a, I'm a marathon runner and an ultra marathon runner myself. So understanding um, or maybe digging into a little bit of what you said there around the ability for intermittent fasting to allow the body to um, better, um, not necessarily store glycogen stores, but but certainly to to um, increase the body's ability to use glycogen uh, more efficiently. So can, can, you, can you dig into that a little bit? Because there, yeah, there, there yeah. are many, many different sort of uh, theories and, and thoughts around that. I'll tell you, you know, my expertise is in long-term water-only fasting, and that's where I have my most uh, significant experience and understanding of uh, the literature. The intermittent fasting literature is is well represented by Walter Longo and those gentlemen, and and I mm-hmm. and I'd really defer to them on the specifics of intermittent fasting and their purported mechanisms. What we do know, though, is that these fasting mimicking diets are designed to try to induce some of the same changes that are well demonstrated to happen in actual fasting, where you're doing long-term fasting. Yeah. Um, and and many of the studies that were done on rats, for example, these rats are fasting three or four days, but you need to remember that rats, when they're doing short-term fasting, that's actually equivalent to uh, what we're talking about with long-term fasting in humans, because they can only fast a few days before they deplete reserves and starve. You can't fast rats long periods of time. Sure. So a, a four-day fast in a rat is a really, is, you know, a significant percentage of their fasting capacity, much like what we see in humans when we're fasting people for 40 days. Okay. So, the, the mechanisms and changes that occur in long-term fasting are fairly well uh, demonstrated. The mechanisms in uh, intermittent fasting um, are demonstrated, but you know, it's very difficult to exchange uh, animal and human studies when it comes to duration. So in terms of whether you, whether you see these at 12 or 16 hours versus you know, two days, or whether you put people mm-hmm. on five days of 750 calories, uh, as, as Longo's group does with uh, products like Prolon, where they're putting okay. in higher fat, lower, lower carbide intake to try to induce these, these mechanisms. The mechanism mm-hmm. pathways themselves, I think, are fairly clear. Exactly how they translate between human and, and animal, I think, is still being actively investigated. And we don't do work on intermittent fasting at Truner Health Center. All of our patients are fasting between 5 and 40 days. Mm-hmm. And so the data that we have that we're familiar with is really on this on the longer term fasting. So, I mean, if, if I may there, I think for me, the key words when we're talking about fasting is, you know, autophagy, um, ketosis, you know, it's, it's in this, in these realms, but there's, 
Something that I that I experienced myself when I when I do intermittent fasting, and I understand in in your space it is more long term effects. And I guess my question is, how did you feel the effect on the psychology of the patients that come over to your clinic when they're enduring this long term fast? I mean, I'm sure they go through a lot of different uh, levels of of clarity and 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 some levels of maybe some struggles. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I think it's an accentuation of the change she was short-term fasting. When you do intermittent fasting and patients begin to take control of their dietary intake, um, there's a tremendous amount of empowerment that occurs. I mean, let's face it. Most people think that if they get on a plane in New York and they were to fly all the way to California, um, they would die somewhere over Colorado. You know, and certainly, unless they ate the peanuts. I mean, they think those pretzels <laughs> saved their life, you know, because they wouldn't be able to make it. Once you realize that you can skip a meal or two. And I, you can I've, function, I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> uh, you, it's, a, it's a very empowering. Uh, some people have a lot of cravings because their blood sugar and their blood insulin levels are constantly being bounced around because of their use of refined carbohydrates. Um, their blood sugars um, will go up. The insulin goes up. It drives the sugar down. The brain thinks they're starving. And now they're getting all this craving. You see a lot of these impulsive eating behaviors in people because in part for biological reasons and part psychological reasons, I'm, too, I'm sure too. Uh, so anything you do to empower people, get them better sh- uh, blood sugar, blood insulin control is likely to help them avoid some of this uh, binging and eating and, and, and uh, uh, basically uh, stressing their body out uh, just because of the, of the dietary patterns that they're choosing to follow. And so I, I'm quite certain that uh, intermittent fasting might be helpful there, but profound water-only fasting, long-term water-only fasting has a profound effect on this. Um, so, for example, in type 2 diabetics where uh, blood sugar, uh, insulin production is not the problem. They actually produce more insulin, but there's insulin resistance. It's not working, uh, in part because they're high-fat animal-based diets. Mm-hmm. As a consequence, when you fast, you reduce that uh, insulin resistance. And so blood sugar levels begin to normalize. So, you know, a significant percentage of our type 2 diabetics not only normalize their blood sugar levels, but can achieve normal blood sugar levels without medication. Now, granted, they have to continue to do dangerous radical things like eat good and exercise and go to bed on time in order to be able to maintain it. But for those that are willing to do these really (laughs) radical interventions like healthy diet and lifestyle and exercise, they can achieve normal blood sugar levels, eliminate the the consequences of the diabetes uh, and recover. And that's almost unheard of. If you talk to most diabetologists, they'll tell you that none of their patients get well. Yeah. They're on meds the rest of their life. They're telling them that from the beginning. There's no getting well. Yeah. It's like losing weight and weight loss. But is, is that the game? But we won't go down that route today. Um, <laughs> Dr. Allen, the, uh, it's quite daunting for the layman to think about a 40-day water fast. I mean, I, I, I pride myself on being into some some crazy things, uh, running ice baths, Wim Hof stuff, this sort of thing. But for me, if you said to me that you're going to do a 40-day water fast, that, that scares me. What are, what are some of the challenges that some of your patients face when they're well, again when they're i don't know that you this. would be a good candidate for a water 40 to water fast because first of all you, you wouldn't have the necessarily the reserves that you know comfortably do 40 days you'd have to rest sure. for 40 days which would drive you crazy and <laughs> yeah, you'd also get some disuse atrophy you know from uh, having to rest for 40 days so i don't know that that yeah. would be a recommendation but let's say you okay. were thinking of doing two or three weeks of fasting which would be sure. a, a much more sure. uh, uh contain uh, achievable goal um the, the stresses that people have is, number one, they think they're going to die. 
because <laughs> they don't understand how it actually works in terms of body okay. recycling reserves. So first okay. of all, you, if you get educated to understand what reality is, that helps reduce some of that imminent fear. Uh, hardest part of fasting usually is the first few days, and it's not the fasting that's the problem. It's the withdrawal of our highly addictive habits, like the use of caffeine, a highly yeah. addictive nervous system stimulant, alcohol, um, mm -hmm. eating greasy, fatty, slimy, high-fat, dead-decaying flesh diets that are full of sugar, oil, and salt. So withdrawing mm -hmm. from these uh, behaviors that artificially stimulate dopamine in our brain and lead to an addictive cycle, that's where the problem comes. You know, we've noticed recently, we've asked patients before they come to the center to adopt a whole plant food SOS-free diet for a few days and don't mm -hmm. drink coffee or, or um, uh, alcohol, et cetera. Just doing that for just a few days has made a huge difference in the success of patients transitioning into fasting, getting through the fasting process, their comfort mm -hmm. level, because what we found was most of the distress really wasn't even fasting. It was mm -hmm. withdrawing from caffeine and alcohol and animal yeah. food. These are the things that cause people such distress. Once you've kind of started that pathway, it's the fasting itself relatively uneventful. In fact, the staff at True North, which fast every year preventively, it's what we call boring. I mean, you know, there's really <laughs> yes. very little entertainment value for the doctors because those, those fasts are relatively easy. Transition sure. is good. It's quite uneventful. And so that, that's the first thing is people's fear isn't no, so much fasting as much mm -hmm. as withdrawing from their addictions. They're caught in the pleasure trap. Uh, uh, look, that's it. And discipline is a tough thing, right? And it's, um, you know, we talk about this in, in, in fitness and certainly endurance space of, um, of creating uh, mental models within, within from, a, from a psychological perspective to make sure that you are uh, applying discipline, applying stress in the right way so that you can, um, well, uh, someone like David Goggins would say, you can callous the mind, you can become stronger, you can you realize that you can survive without. It's the, it's the ice bath, it's the cold shower in the morning, it's the not having the, the, the meal that you think that you need three or four times a day and otherwise you might, you might die. So I think the sort of the psychology around that is, um, is significant. And one of the things that you know, we're probably pretty guilty of, we run a digital communications agency here in Dubai. And we, we, I mean, I can't even count the amount of coffees that we get through in a, in a day across the team. But the few times I've tried personally to, to stop having that, it's banging headaches, it's all sorts. It, it just shows yeah, how addicted we are. That's it, right? We're, you know, we're an addict yeah. to, to coffee and as many people are. Sugar, I think, is even worse. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's, well, certainly sugar, oil, and salt are deceptive because people think they're food. They don't realize these are actually highly processed food fractionates that are added to food. They're not actually food. They're chemicals we put in there. Mm -hmm. And because they're accepted and normal, we don't recognize them as drugs. At least mm -hmm. with coffee uh, and caffeine, people recognize, okay, well, maybe, you know, this isn't a good thing. We know that it increases heart irritation and palpitations and endogenous production of cholesterol, and it has a 17-hour half-life. It disrupts sleep quality. We recognize it as a drug. It's such a common drug that we kind of accept it as, as acceptable. Yeah. You know, we try to pitch it as healthy. You know, we try to pretend yeah. because there's some antioxidants left in it, you know, that it's a good thing. Or, or alcohol. Alcohol, you know, red wine, it's got resveratrol. So if you don't drink, you ought to start, right? Let's, let's not go there. I enjoy, I enjoy a glass of red wine. I, don't, I, don't. I understand. But, you know, <laughs> getting free of the, of the dietary pleasure trap is one of the real benefits of fasting because it helps people, mm. you know, induce those changes. And that's probably why every major religion in the world has a tradition about fasting in one form or another because mm -hmm. of how empowering it can be to give people control over their own domain. And mm. particularly in long-term fasting, can't help it. It changes the way people feel about themselves and the world around them. 
And so, you know, people induce a lot of lifestyle changes post-fasting, I think in part from having a chance to have that introspection in the process that goes along with fasting, besides the physiological adaptive mm. process. But we shouldn't underestimate the physiological adaptive process, both with intermittent and long-term fasting. There's so many biomarkers now that have been identified that change profoundly with these practices that are associated with increased uh, quantity and quality of life. You know, with rats, you can double their lifespan just by doing uh, periodic, uh, consistent calorie restriction or periodic fasting. Yeah. You can wow. double it. And, you know, wow. we'll see how it holds out with humans uh, and whether <laughs> we can have some of the same profound effects uh, on humans in increasing longevity. But we certainly see a profound effect on the quality uh, of people's lives. You know, we should differentiate what the real goal here is. Most people talk about life expectancy, you know, living longer. Mm -hmm. You know, that's certainly a desirable goal. But honestly, how long a person lives is largely determined by genetics and luck. Okay. What we should be focusing on, in my opinion, is healthy life expectancy. In other words, of the years you're alive, how many of them are you fully functional, able of taking care of yourself versus finding yourself unable to talk or move lying in some nursing home bed waiting for people to change your diaper? Yeah. A healthy life expectancy may be of greater concern, and that's where diet and lifestyle and fasting may have its most profound effect. The average person in the United States spends 9.4 years debilitated and 16 years in poor health, and we take wow. most of our medical dollars are spent in treating older people with diseases that the treatment doesn't necessarily affect the quality and quality of your life. We, if we focus more on the actual causes of death rather than the leading causes of death, leading cause of death being heart disease, cancer, and stroke, actual mm -hmm. causes of death are drinking alcohol, using drugs, and eating an animal-rich, highly processed, uh, refined carbohydrate diet. If we put our effort on the actual causes of death, we might get a much more profound effect on the leading causes mm -hmm. of death than waiting and treating with bypass procedures and drugs and things that have limited effect on all-cause mortality. That's said, I think, I think for, for a lot of us, when we're thinking about getting well, right? Like when we, when we think of ourselves maybe a little bit sick and we want to get well through this process, through the, through the fasting process, um, it, it's, for some of us, maybe it might be a little bit difficult to, under, to, to, to understand or comprehend that your body is enough to heal itself. If you were to just leave space for your body to do its thing, it's going to heal, it's going to heal itself. So through many different processes, like you were mentioning earlier, can you tell us a little bit about autophagy specifically? And maybe what, what is the, uh, you know, the, the process that happens there, especially while you're, you're going through these long-term fasts? Well, you know, autophagy is autophagy or the ability of the body to eat up debris. So the, the things that the body's immune system gets rid of are things like cancer cells, you know, which are constantly forming in the body. And if you can get rid of them faster than you're, you're forming them, you stay healthy. If they, if they form faster than you can get rid of them, simplistically, you know, eventually mm -hmm. they double up and, and yeah. become a measurable mass and, and can kill you. Uh, and free radicals, right? Well, no. Well, free radicals are reactive oxygen molecules that are associated with inflammation. So, you know, getting okay. rid of the consequences of free radicals might, might be okay. a bet, better description. But if you look, I, I think the gentleman's name is Yushinori Oshumi was the gentleman who won okay. the Nobel prize for medicine in 2016 for his it's interesting work on autophagy and how important uh, increasing autophagy is. If you want to prevent cancer or maintain yourself with cancer, or you want to, get rid of the intracellular debris that accumulates as part of the aging process and the byproducts of inflammatory products like uh, free radicals. Uh, you know, uh, so if you think about free radicals, uh, think about uh, people that smoke. Uh, mm -hmm. You notice they're 
they get premature aged look. They get wrinkles. Wrinkles are actually cross-linked collagen tissue. And it, okay. they come from, in part, free radicals. So more free radicals, more aging. That's why when people smoke, they get what we call smoker's face because they get this okay. prematurely aged wrinkles from the consequence of bathing the body in free radicals. Now, do you, you know, it, the damage to the lungs associated with lung cancer is tied to cigarette smoking, despite you know, up till recently serious objections from the cigarette manufacturers. It turns out, no, if you smoke, you have a higher risk of lung cancer. But do you know that 80% of smokers will never get lung cancer? Oh, wow. It's uh-huh. almost okay. like smoking might be protective. And it is. I argue that smoking is protective against lung cancer. And here's how. When you smoke, you get this tremendous amount of free radicals, which damages the animal lining of the blood vessels. And that leads to coronary artery disease and heart attacks and strokes. And the way smoking protects you from lung cancer is by killing you from heart disease (laughs) and and, um, uh, strokes before you live long enough to grow the tumors. So the trick to make smoking less dangerous as far as cancer would be to make it even more dangerous for um, heart disease. And and if you could make it dangerous enough and everybody died of a heart attack, I'm wondering if they would allow them to advertise it as cancer safe. (laughs) So the point is smoking and the free radicals don't just damage the face. They Mm. damage the inside of the vessels. They damage the entire body. Well, there's other sources of free radicals too. Like you can drink alcohol including Mm. red wine, including organic red wine. (laughs) When you break down alcohol, the peroxidation of alcohol bathes the body in free radicals. And that's why people that drink a lot get cirrhosis of the liver. It's a scar tissue, a fatty infiltrate that occurs as the liver tries to detoxify you from the nasty effect of alcohol. And so you can also, if you don't want to smoke or drink, you could eat high fat foods like fried foods, French fries, potato chips, uh, foods cooked with oils at high temperature, also rich source of free radicals. Um, and so the point is, you know, uh, dealing with the consequences of free radicals uh, and the inflammation that comes from it is actually one of the thought to be one of the causing causal factors in most of the diseases of, of, of uh, dietary excess. So heart disease, the cancer, et cetera. So we want to avoid the consequences by not smoking and drinking and not eating animal rich foods and highly processed refined carbohydrates and also try to put out the fire by increasing autophagy and mm. things that increase autophagy include fasting. Fasting has a profound effect on autophagy and that may be one of the mechanisms by which fasting is able to help people uh, heal quicker from things like inflammatory related diseases, heart disease, diabetes, uh, and some forms of cancer. Wow. And I think when it comes to when it comes to the to the balanced, optimized uh, way of lifestyle, I think a lot of our listeners are people who run their own businesses. Uh, they're they're kind of living high pressure lifestyles. Um, what, in your opinion, what do you think is a is a, an approach to uh, their daily life, the way that they eat, the way that they fast, that could be balanced and could optimize performance? Well, you know, the fact is that. Uh, stress can be good and stress can be bad. Too much stress, if it exceeds your body's ability to compensate, uh, breaks the system down. And, you know, athletes are well aware of that. You know, so too little training, you get disuse atrophy and sarcopenia and you get fat and you fall apart and that's no good. But you can also overtrain where you put more stress in the body than the adaptive body's ability can, can do to keep up with it. And so what, what you want to do is 
be cognizant of that and then say, what can I do to increase my body's ability to compensate for the high level training I'm trying to do in order to compete at a high level, for example. And the three things that actually make a big difference are, are diet, sleep, uh, and possibly fasting, whether it's intermittent fasting or long-term fasting. These things we know can make a big difference. People that eat healthfully, heal better, heal faster. There's less products as a uh, less intermediate products of metabolism to have to detoxify more capacity left of the body to deal with the inflammatory products that are associated with high level of exercise, you know, uh, too much exercise. In fact, you know, there are studies looking at the effect on, uh, high performance marathon runners and other things that actually associate with health compromise. Well, if you're going to do that level of performance, first of all, recognize maximum athletic performance isn't necessarily the same as maximum health. So what you do yeah. to maximize athletic performance isn't always the same thing that you would do to maintain long-term health. And so if you yeah, are going to so. try to do that competitively, then you have to, well, what can I do to help, you know, minimize the damage? Okay. And if you look at some of the professional athletes that are competing at advanced age, one common thing you'll see to them is they often take extreme efforts uh, in terms of diet exercise and training methodology in order to minimize the wear and tear that comes from that higher level of performance. Um, so the point I'm making is that whether you're a highly competitive athlete, you're just trying to maximize lifespan with, with regular um, aerobic and, and, and uh, activity, or uh, you don't want to exercise that much and you're just doing the minimal amount necessary to prolong life, healthy diet and lifestyle choices are likely to put you in a position to be able to compensate for the inevitable consequences. And, and as you mentioned, you know, free radicals and, and inflammatory products are probably one of the dominant things we have to be concerned about if, we're, if our goal is to live longer and live better. So, so it's, it's adding capacity at the same time as removing much of the damage that, that you're doing through, um, as you said, sort of the, the SOS diet and the, and the like. Interesting what you're saying about high-performing athletes, certainly, let's say, at the tail end of their career. I think Tom Brady, probably one of the most famous, um, and it's, you know, he is renowned uh, for his focus on recovery, uh, his focus on diet. He has a personal chef um, that uh, creates foods that are hyper-focused on non-inflammatory non foods to try and reduce inflammation in his body. He's obviously going through a lot of wear and tear, so he's trying to increase his capacity to recover, um, and it's his, his capacity to withstand levels of stress. Um, one, another trend that's coming out at the moment is uh, these, these wound bands. Um, as I'm sure you're very aware, it's the same thing. They give you a recovery score every morning. And I'm sure you have an opinion on that, but the, um, in terms of how that's made up. But the, the same the, the concept follows um, looking at your sleep, looking at your stress levels during the day. How have you recovered during the night through quality of sleep the, is, is the focus in this case. And then how is your body adapted to be able to train the next day? So someone like myself as, a, as an endurance athlete, I might have a really heavy session tomorrow morning, but I might wake up and, the, and, and my system's telling me you should not do this session because you've not recovered. You're actually going to be overtraining if you do this. You're going to be doing more damage than good. So yeah. it will allow me to then move my sort of training protocols around uh, and try and sort of train hard when the body's accepting of that. You know, there was an interesting uh, movie out, Game Changers, where they looked at some highly competitive athletes and their dietary choices. Yeah. And one thing I've seen that seems to be recurring is that particularly for endurance athletes or people that are, you know, athletes that say are, you know, playing 82 games a season or something, you know, recovery tends to be one of the, the major limiting factors. And in fact, you know, even aging, you know, if you look at NBA players, typically, you know, as they reach their mid thirties, they're considering, you know, peak career. It's not that they don't have the skill set. They don't have the recovery capacity. And so, especially mm -hmm. when they have these 
very, very long seasons, uh, you know, injury becomes oftentimes the limiting and dominating factor. Um, and many of those uh, athletes that do seem to be performing better, either in the fourth quarter at the end of their athletic performance or at the end of their careers, are often people that are adopting these whole plant food uh, dominated diets where there's less uh, pro-inflammatory components in the diet. And that may be uh, uh, one of the mechanisms by which they're able to you know, uh, provide better performance. My experience is mostly with people that want the last 20 years of their life to be highly functional and not debilitated. And that we see dramatic. I mean, I've got um, patients now, I'm seeing 30 and 35 year follow-ups where we've been tracking these people doing these diets. You know, they start when I see them in their fifties, usually when they're having serious health problems and now they're in their eighties. And the common theme is that uh, they keep, you know, they're outliving everybody including their kids in some cases. You know, my, my great example is my mother. When she turned 92, she said she'd outlived all 52 of her lifelong friends. Everybody she knew was dead. And she felt very alone. And she said, Alan, you need to warn your patients. If they're going to do these diets, make younger friends. <laughs> and she said, not just a little younger, much younger. Yeah. Because even the friends that were in their 80s, when she was in her yeah. 90s, you know, really weren't very uh, functional. And so, you know, and that's yeah. a really big problem. So if you are going to do this, you're going to increase your life, your likelihood of living to your full potential and hopefully without debility. But keep in mind, there's consequences of it. <laughs> Make younger friends. <laughs> Make younger friends. Make younger friends. Uh, or at least pick healthy friends, you know, because, yeah. you know, you don't want to, you don't want to end up not having together. a social that's network. <laughs> No, that's amazing, and 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 we appreciate we appreciate your time and 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 all the insights that you've just given us. Uh, I think it was super helpful and, and insightful to our listeners to to dive deeper into the the benefits of of fasting. And I feel like it's such a primal, um, you know, something that's within our body that we we get to unlock and we get to experience for ourselves. Uh, just given that opportunity to tune in, and of course, in 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 the long term uh, cases, do it in a supervised uh, environment in a clinic like yours. Uh, where, where everything's measured and everything is, is, uh, is, is controlled in a controlled setting. Um, so thank you so much. Yeah. I think it's it my like, pleasure. Uh, you know, and if any yeah. of your viewers are interested in whether fasting might be relevant to them, we offer a free service where people can go to our website, complete our registration forms. We'll review their medical history and give them the best advice we can. We don't charge for it. And so, you know, it's something Amazing. if they want to talk to me about, you know, whether fasting might have application for them, they're certainly free. Uh, to go to uh, truenorthhealth.com and uh, and contact us, be happy to try to provide our best advice. Excellent, look, Alan. Th thank you so much for, for for your time on this. It's it's very timely for us, obviously, with um, with Ramadan coming up as well. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of conversations across, and um, certainly, sort of the high performance space of of you know, uh, in, in the business space as well as the endurance space. I think you know you've you've certainly got me thinking around. Uh, number of um, a number of different areas of how I can potentially improve uh, capacity and performance through um, through uh, fasting and to be honest also also diet um, I might not have that uh, half bottle of red wine tonight you've got me thinking about that um, so Darren thank you very much for your time where, where can people Perfect. find you if they want to if they want to learn more outside of the um, outside of the website well then go to um, the, we have a, a we have truenorthhealth.com, which would give them all the information, our articles, lots of content. There's also a new website, uh, fasting.org, which is a fasting compendium website. And it just brings together the world's literature on fasting uh, for people that really want to get into fasting. And that's 
everything's freely available and it's, it's actually a good, uh, a good site. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes as well. So I appreciate that. Um, thank you so much. Uh, My pleasure. Been an absolute pleasure.